It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks makes cloud accounting software for freelancers and small businesses like mine. They offer easy, quick invoicing, late payment reminders, time tracking, and all sorts of other stuff that just makes your life so much easier and saves you time. For a 30-day trial of FreshBooks, go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the How Did You Hear About Us section. This episode of Oppo is also brought to you by The Big Story, Canada's first daily news and culture podcast. Every morning host Jordan Heath Rollins sits down with one of the country's best journalists to take a deeper look at a story that matters to Canadians. I should know. I am frequently one of the best journalists hosted on the show. And this is more than just reading headlines or taking clips or quotes or hot takes. This is about actually getting deeper into the story and actually talking through some of the big issues that you might not read in the paper. You can find The Big Story on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or Spotify, or really anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find it at thebigstorypodcast.ca, or say hi to them on Twitter, at thebigstoryfpn. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. I'm Jen Gerson, and I'm disappointed that we aren't going to talk about chocolate milk this week. And I'm Justin Ling, and I'm already tired of this election, and it hasn't even started yet. On this week's show, we talk vice, from BC Kush to Nova Scotia wine, when it comes to weed and booze, which provinces are getting it right, and which are getting it wrong. And we check in with the Greens. Are they really doing things differently, or is Elizabeth May just going to become another mommy figure who won't show up to your dance recital and leaves you a small and broken figure fighting on Twitter? Finally, I'm going to complain about the Amber Alert system, so get your angry tweets ready. Monster. Warren Kinsella is joining the Green Party's war room for the upcoming election. Kinsella is a former advisor to Jean Chrétien and has been vocal in his criticism of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. 
I was really surprised, and at first glance, I thought this was a big mistake. And I think Warren Kinsella has many, many issues. If somebody's coming at you with the gloves off, it's not a bad idea to have Warren Kinsella in your corner. So, Jen, I'm not sure if you noticed, but uh, there was a, a big hiring announcement for the Green Party of Canada over the last couple of weeks. Uh, they've decided to go with somebody who, um, I think if I had to sum up in a word, I would use litigious. We're going to get sued. We're going to get sued. If you haven't seen, the report came out that Elizabeth May has hired Warren Kinsella, who I don't think has worked on a successful campaign since he was uh, a relatively mid-level figure in uh, John Cretchen's hey, war room. Hey, he, he ran a, what was it? He worked with Olivia Chow. That was clearly a smashing success. Uh, before he was maybe fired, maybe uh, resigned. All to say is that many people were raising their eyebrows at Elizabeth May's decision to hire a former, you know, backroom boy from the Liberal Party who has spent most of his last several years running a lobbying firm and telling everyone uh, how important he is. And people were a bit confused. It was an odd hire for a party that claims to be wanting to do things differently. Was it a strange hire for a party that's actually trying to win for once? <laughs> if you want to win for once, I'm not sure Warren can say is the guy you hire. Okay, are we being too cruel? Is it possible that he has skill sets that are valuable here that he could bring to the table? A different perspective on Canadian politics, perhaps? You know what? People in this country are so fed up with the Liberal and Conservative parties and to a somewhat lesser degree, the NDP. I don't know that the Greens need to worry about emulating the Liberal Party. I think maybe it's time to stop recycling the, the same self-proclaimed strategists that have been around for you know 25 odd years. Maybe the Greens can just do their own thing and people will vote for it if they like that. That that sounds like a loser strategy, I'm not going to lie. I bring Warren Kinsella up, mostly because I'm not sure that we have the depth of talent in political organizing in this country that, that we probably should rise to. If you look at the people who are running the campaigns for, for the major parties, it's kind of the same people who have been around running the same kind of tired campaigns for the last several years. Jerry Butts is back running the Liberal campaign, arguably one of the more exciting political organizers in this country. I mean, he he ran Trudeau's uh, amazing come from behind campaign last time. But apart from him, you know, it's Hamish Marshall helping run Andrew Shear's campaign. The you know the same guy who is behind Stephen Harper's particularly unpleasant last two federal campaigns and behind every rebel fundraising initiative you can think of for the last several years. We got to be careful about that because Hamish distanced himself from the rebel in 2017. Fair enough. Hamish Marshall did leave the rebel. Once people started reporting that he was helping run the rebels, no, he started I mean, he, he, not exactly he left top the rebel marks. Once the rebel took a turn for the dark Charlottesville side. Anyway, Jagmeet Singh's campaign team is mostly made up of you know longtime organizers in, uh, from Ontario and a former cabinet minister from Manitoba. The more I look at the who they're staffing up with for these campaigns, the more I'm convinced that this federal election is just going to be the absolute worst. We're being assholes because like I don't know how to be a yeah. political strategist, so like I'm in a really great position to criticize. But but it seems like it's the same people over and over again. And do you want to know why? It's because there's no fucking money in Canada. Like there's there's yeah. no there's no money. This is the flip side to really strict donation limits, which are good because they minimize, you know, things like corporate influence and wealthy people influence. No question. I mean, I wouldn't trade the Canadian system for the American system, but if you actually want to make a half 
decent living in Canada and you want to work in politics, you need a day job, which is why so many lawyers do this. Or a lot of them are lobbyists, which actually creates a really troubling conflict of interest where uh, you go and you you know, you know run uh, someone's campaign. You're like Melissa Lanceman, who helped run Doug Ford's uh, election victory, who then, you know, kind of went into the lobbying consulting world. Yes, exactly. And that that is that is the weird ecosystem that we're in. They're either going into law or lobbying consulting or some form of PR and strategy group. And that's what you have to do, because as I said, you can make a couple thousand dollars running a campaign. It's not a couple thousand dollars, the highest ends, you know, you're making a couple tens of thousands of dollars, but it's not enough. Like it's, it's, it's not a significant amount of money compared to what people are pulling in in the US where you're making six, even seven figures. And so therefore it is a full-time job that people take seriously as a job. It feels so weird to to want there to be a professional political consultant class in this country, but I, I actually do think it would be for the best. Part of the reason there's only a handful of these names you hear consistently, people like Warren Kinsella, people like Nick Kuvalis, is because they've actually created firms for themselves where they actually kind of contract to various campaigns that either do voter contacts, sometimes they do lobbying, sometimes they do other stuff. But they're the ones making a go of it because they've actually had to create a business that does like 20 different things that is not just strategy, uh, but it's actually, you know, caller ID, um, you know, live live agent calling, or they're doing lobbying on the side or consulting on the side. I don't know. I kind of think that if we actually did have people whose only job it was in this country was to run political campaigns, we would be avoiding a big conflict of interest and we would probably see a more diversity of tactics and actually see more interesting and, and creative and thoughtful elections. Yeah, that's optimistic. I mean, I think that that's, that's deeply optimistic. I think politics is always going to be a bit of a shabby business. It's always going to attract interesting people. Let's just put it that way. But the thing that I would also point out is that backroom boys, if they're actually good at their job, you don't know who they are. If somebody is engaging in you know political strategy to build up their own political brand, and there are lots of political strategists in this country who that would describe, chances are they're not actually very good at their job. They're just seeing this as an opportunity to build their own myth or brand, right? If you're actually good as a backroom guy, the general public should not know your name. It's like the reverse cheers where no one knows your name. Yes, exactly. You are the, 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 you are the shadowy alcoholic in the back of the dingy bar. You are not Norm. This episode of Oppo is brought to you by FreshBooks. I can tell you that as a freelancer, the one thing I wish I had more time to do is actually focus on my business so I can grow it. I wish I did not have to spend so much freaking time doing invoices and looking back at my annual sales for tax purposes. That stuff is so annoying. Since I got FreshBooks, all of that has been so much easier. I actually have more time for me and my business. And you know what? Business is good. Accounting tasks are just a huge waste of time. I hate having to sift through emails to find an old invoice so I can copy it and update stuff. FreshBooks automates so much of that, and it just removes so much of the headache. On average, FreshBooks accounting software saves users up to 192 hours a year because it makes everything so much easier. That's 192 hours you could spend networking, doing sales calls, training, going to Cabo. You could go to Cabo for 192 hours with all that free time you've saved. If that's not incentive enough, we're offering a 30-day free trial of FreshBooks for all of our listeners. That includes you. Go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter oppo, O-P-P-O, in the how did you hear about us section. Maybe you, listener, like me, have totally given up on Canada ever changing its puritanical ways. A few years ago, I basically came to the conclusion that so long as I live in Ontario, I will only be able to buy my booze in a government-run liquor shop or buy my pot by a government weed dealer. 
suddenly that appears to be changing. Well, in Ontario at the very least. It seems to be a trend of provinces tinkering a little bit with how they sell illicit substances to the public, and with elections coming around the corner in several provinces, it might just be a winner for a whole bunch of provincial governments. I'm going to make a wild prediction that Doug Ford is going to handle liquor privatization as well as he's handled everything else, including weed privatization. (laughs) As in, not particularly well. Uh, One of the biggest parallels for party time products is Alberta, and that's because Alberta has one of the most liberalized private liquor sales regimes in the country. While wholesaling is still done by the Alberta Gaming Liquor and Cannabis Agency, all of our actual retailers are private, and this has created a very dramatically different landscape for plonk sales in this province. What's a plonk? You don't know what a plonk is? Jesus. What the fuck is a plonk? A plonk. It's booze. Okay. Anyway, I realize that a lot of people are looking to Alberta as potentially a model for liquor privatization, but I keep hearing things like in the Toronto Star that Alberta is bad and a total disaster. Yeah, and you want to know what? I will admit that perhaps we in Alberta are overly sensitive to what Ontarians say about us just a tiny bit. However, it does seem that whenever private liquor sales come up in Ontario is something to be seriously considered. You guys get inundated with all this crazy batshit propaganda saying that Alberta liquor stores are dingy and dirty and awful and that we have high prices and no selection. For example, I'm going to read this sentence that came out of a column that Heather Malick recently did in the Toronto Star. And I realize it's Heather Malick, but come on. Quote, alcoholics are costly to treat and they suffer terribly. According their vote comes courtesy of a report by a former health minister in Alberta where booze is sold in private liquor stores. The problem, as Albertans know, is you're too afraid to buy it. Those stores are often shabby places that are magnets for violence. Watch out, Premier Ford. It's Ontario, and there's going to be NIMBYs. Where the fuck? I realize she's being half satirical there, but they're, like, has she never actually left the annex ever? When you first pitched this segment, Jen, I had to go do some research because I'm like, is the belief out there that Alberta has some sort of Mad Max-style liquor retail system? I've been to a couple of Alberta liquor stores. They run the gamut. I've been to one that just seemed to be coconut piled up to like yes. warehouse ceilings in in some strip mall that was very unnerving. But I've also been to perfectly nice liquor stores there. It doesn't seem to me that you're all that different from British Columbia. I actually had to come across all of this propaganda being put out by what I later realized was the folks who own the beer store here in Ontario, which is its own terrifying kind of corporatist uh, monopoly. Hi, I'm Glenn Howard, manager of the beer store in Midland, Ontario. Sometimes people tell me they think beer would be cheaper if it was only sold in privatized stores like in Alberta. So I flew to Calgary to find out. I found a six-pack of Mill Street Organic. This is $3 more expensive here than it is in Ontario. Reason being, we have a far more efficient delivery system in Ontario than we do have here in Alberta. I don't know who they're trying to sell that Alberta is this failed state. I mean, I don't think anyone's really buying it. It seems like the Albertans are watching this propaganda more than people from Ontario. Oh, we 100% are, and we're super sensitive about it, okay? (laughs) You know what I mean? To ease your minds about the evils of Alberta private liquor, I went to go talk to a man named Jeff Last, who is a really amazing wine columnist for the Calgary Herald, and he also manages a store called Bin 905, which is one of the swankiest neighborhoods in downtown Calgary. I walked in and we're talking custom oak millwork and, you know, beautiful black accents and halogen lights. 
This was so yuppie that I felt uncomfortable being there until I saw like the high-end sakis and yuzu wines on display and like Japanese whiskey that I couldn't find anywhere else. Oh, I love Japanese whiskey. It is really hard to find in Ontario. There's like two different bottles and they're not good ones. I can hook you up. I can send you some Japanese whiskey that. if you want. Oh, no, no, you can't send booze across provincial lines, Jen. Shit. Not allowed. Long and short is that we talked to Jeff last about a couple of things. One was, does Alberta have shabby, crappy liquor stores? On this point... No dispute. You know, I mean, I don't think anyone's, you know, going to be surprised when they walk into a small little, you know, liquor hole at 3 o'clock in the morning. It is what it is. It's crazy to me you can buy booze at 3 a.m. It's crazy. So, yes, if you are in a crappy part of town and you're just trying to sell to a market of people who want to pick up kokanees at 2 a.m., that is your niche. You can totally open up that store. Or you can open up a store like Bin 905. One of the things that he pointed out is that if you go into a very, very high-end store like his, you can get access to these really niche products, bottles of wine that you actually can't get in Ontario and Quebec because of the way the whole system works. Absolutely. Selection is, is by far better here. We list more, there's more products listed in Alberta than there is in Quebec and Ontario combined. The stores themselves can go to the AGLC and say, hey, we want this really rare bottle of wine. And the AGSC will bring it in, which they can then resell at their store. This is very, very different from a model that's top down, like the LCBO, where essentially you have, you know, a dozen wine tasters deciding what the mass market is allowed to get for all of their monopoly stores. Yeah, but Jen, based on this propaganda video from the Ontario beer retailers, everything's way more expensive in Alberta. Yeah, that's also totally bullshit. Here's also where this gets more complicated. The cheapest and most common stuff can be cheaper in Ontario and Quebec because they have the advantage of being able to purchase at scale in a way that Alberta doesn't. But that advantage disappears almost immediately when you get out of like the local craft brew or the the kokanee and Coors conversation. If you start talking about anything that's more specialized than that, it actually gets cheaper in Alberta very quickly. So it's a bit of a trade-off. Like, yeah, you know what? Probably on average, you know, a 24 pack of Coors Light or something is going to be cheaper in Ontario than Alberta. But if you are getting like a craft beer from Denmark, you're going to get way better selection and way better deals in Alberta. So if you're kind of curious, across the country, you know, there is no sort of uniform model for, you know, liquor retailing. The most popular, of course, is just the government runs everything. For many, many years, Ontario, uh, the Maritime Provinces, all government-run stores as well as several in the north. That's slowly sort of changing. You know, uh, in Alberta, B.C., uh, Manitoba, and Newfoundland, there is at least some mix of, of private retailers. If in Newfoundland, you can buy some beer at the corner store. Of course, Quebec, you can go to the Depeneur and get all awful, terrible wine, as well as a whole bunch of selection of beer. And I tend to think, you know, these models work pretty well. It was actually, of all people, the Kathleen Wynne government who slowly started changing things in Ontario. I got to sit down a couple years ago with the finance minister at the time who was, you know, celebrating his own decision to uh, let some beer and wine get sold in some grocery stores, but only up to a certain amount. They were very, very trepidatious about the whole thing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
And at one point in the interview, he sort of goes, well, we don't want to become Quebec. <laughs> and I was like, why? Quebec. Why? What's the ter- <laughs> Quebec? It's terrible. I actually think to some degree, the fact that um, the beer store and the wine store in this province, which are technically private, but kind of government run and basically organized through conglomerates of, uh, of, of different private companies. I actually think that those companies have turned people against the Ontario model. I mean, I've lived in provinces where there's only government run stores and no one seems to contemplate changing it. I've lived in provinces that where you can get beer at the corner store but also where the provincial liquor stores are really nice and really good and have great selection. People seem happy there. People are just uniformly angry at Ontario's system. It is so unpleasant. The beer stores are awful. They're getting a little bit better, but they're just unpleasant places to go. The wine rack is full of the worst, most undrinkable swill you can imagine. I'm sorry, Ontario wineries, you're not all that good. Uh, and there's no international uh, options unless they're blends. And the LCBOs are, are often you know, closed at random hours and few and far between, and the selection is, is a real hit or miss. And it's sort of frustrating. I think to some degree we have the worst worst of all worlds. Now, the one counterpoint that I think is actually really compelling in this whole conversation is that of all the provinces, Ontario collects the most government revenue from its system by leaps and bounds. That is a bit old, but uh, a study for the uh, Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and Addiction actually kind of compiled all of this, the total revenue, the total costs and all this. And Ontario is by far and away the most profitable system. It rakes in about more than twice as much as Quebec. Yeah, but isn't that a pretty convenient way of reframing that? Because who are they getting that money from? That's consumers. What they're bragging about is having a higher tax on booze. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's basically it. But no, but, but it, it ha- we have to be kind of honest about this. If we change the system, we're going to see less government revenue or we're going to see higher costs. It has to be one of the two. That depends. I mean, it depends on, on, on markup. So, I mean, one of the, the criticisms of the, of the Alberta system, for example, is that well, we get less revenue um, from our sin taxes as we potentially could. And that might be true, but that's because the government isn't marking up booze as high and taking a cut of the profits at the expense of the consumers. So, I mean, like, there's two ways of looking at that. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, but I think we have to be honest about the pros and cons here. Right now, Ontario seems to be heading in the right-ish direction. There is now many grocery stores where you can buy beer and, and some wine. That's good. You know, we're talking about trying to break the beer store monopoly, which is very, very unfair to craft brews. And people tend to want craft brews these days. That's all good. Now, I think the real thing we have to be nervous about is whatever Doug Ford does, because Doug Ford just seems to have the worst instincts in every situation imaginable. This appears to be the most amateurish government I've ever seen. Like, it's actually a, a running joke at this point. I think the the weed regulatory system is a really good cautionary tale. I mean, you know... Oh, totally. You know, in Alberta, you had a private liquor system that informed a private weed retail system that worked really well. In Ontario, Doug Ford came in, blew up the plan to run a government-run uh, weed store, which... Like, a couple of weeks before legalization was like, nah, we spent, what, $650,000 on branding. Let's just throw all that down the trash and just completely blow it up. Yeah. Waited the better part of a year before announcing a private private uh, weed retail lottery uh, that went to a whole bunch of random people who didn't actually have plans to open weed stores who then won basically a golden ticket to sell their license off to some other person who didn't actually win the lottery. They're sitting collecting rent. And meanwhile, the government doesn't actually know who's going to be running their, their weed stores. It's crazy. It's insane. 
It's completely insane. The, the rollout in Ontario versus Alberta could not be more different in terms of weed. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I, there are going to be individual retailers in Alberta who are going to whine at me who are just like, no, no, things haven't been as, as great as we wanted them to be. And this is all very true. There have been hiccups, there have been problems like one would probably expect. However, when you compare it to Ontario, it's been utterly seamless. This is one thing in which I will give the NDP unmitigated praise because they did years-long consultations with with people and the NDP government, which you would have thought would have gone for a public retail system that would have empowered union employees, instead said, nope, Albertans want a private retail system, so that's what we're going to do. And they actually followed through on it. And now, like, it's shocking how quickly and how normal retail weed sales have become in Alberta. I mean, I go to my local supermarket. On the same strip mall, you will have like a liquor store. And now there's cannabis stores that are opening up right next to the grocery stores. So you can do everything in one go. And it's just, it's very normal. And here's a shocking fact. Six months after legalization, do you want to know what the market share for cannabis in Alberta is? What's that? 38%. We have a population of 4 million and yet 38% of all legal cannabis was being sold in Alberta. We we there was something there was something like $24 million worth of legal cannabis sales, which was higher than Ontario, which has a population what three times our size. That's astonishing. Never mind that Alberta posted a $30 million profit from tax revenue mostly from its fully private system while the Ontario cannabis store is going to expect a $25 million loss this year. You're losing money selling weed. What the fuck are you doing wrong? Oh my God. Yes. I mean, the only province that is successfully breaking the back of the black market or will successfully break the back of the black market in any any decent amount of time will be Alberta. Now, this is a really interesting contrast to BC because in BC, the uh, retail market has been very slow and very painful. And actually, BC residents don't seem to be making the switch. And a lot of that actually has to do with the fact that there were so many illegal dispensaries in BC and the black market was just so entrenched, there was no incentive to go to the legal market. But that was very different in Alberta, where it was actually very hard to find an illegal dispensary. My suspicion is that you're going to find that Alberta is one of the major weed players in this country, along with Ontario. So I think it's pretty clear that Alberta's private system works very, very well. Ontario's kind of mish- mishmash system is not great. I-, I finally went to one of the private stores. They're good. They're not amazing. It took forever to open them up. There's still lineups. There's supply shortages. A huge clusterfuck. Um, you know. Meanwhile, Manitoba still isn't actually running any stores. You have to buy it online. It's absolutely insane. This is not any way to run a thoughtful system. But I think actually the maritime provinces have a really good example uh, in terms of how a government-run system can work. The provinces were very prepared. They had their shops open and rented before the legalization day. They hired and trained good staff. The stores looked gorgeous. I got to go visit one in PEI when I was there a couple months ago. I think it's been a total success, and you can look at it from the numbers. Those pot stores will likely post a profit next year after their capital costs are taken care of. And per capita, the maritime provinces are buying way more weed than the rest of the country. They're actually doing a good job of supplanting the black market. So, you know, I I think there are different models that work here. Government-run stores can work. A private model can work. But you have to pick a fucking lane, Ontario. Jesus Christ, get your shit together. Jesus. Okay, so, so Justin, you and I think actually have a disagreement on this point, and that is, I think that if there's a feather in the Liberals' cap, is that they promised weed legalization, which is something that I think especially young Canadians have been clamoring for for a really, really long time, and they actually followed through on this promise, and it's not a minor promise. It's an impact from Ottawa that people are seeing in their everyday lives as they go about their business, and that is pretty interesting and pretty substantive. 
Oh, listen, I think the federal government, a few words notwithstanding, has done a really good job here. People are going to bitch and moan about whether or not their pot stores are open at the right time or accessible or whether their weed is too dry. Well, oh, no, God, no, no. Well, we, can, that. we can also about argue whether about or the not supply the, issues, but that's a whole other show. Yep. Despite all of those problems, whether or not your weed is too dry, whether it's too expensive, whether or not the same strain is in stock every time, all those problems are relatively minor considering how big of an undertaking this was. I think everything has worked relatively well. There are still kinks to iron out. We still haven't done edibles yet. There's still stuff to be done here. But overall, this was a huge undertaking, and the federal government did a very good job. You can disagree, but you're wrong. They did a good job. But no one's going to reward them for it. You don't get rewards for doing the thing you promised you were going to do and doing it pretty well. People don't go to the ballot box going, yeah, that thing you said you were going to do, you did it. Congrats, you've earned my vote. No, people vote based on what's coming next. What do you promise me in the next four years? I don't reward you for your past mandate. I reward you for what you're promising to do in the coming mandate. And I don't think they get top marks. Like I, I don't think people are going to be rushing to the ballot box to say, I'm really happy with the thing you started doing three years ago. It's just not going to happen. Well, but here's, here's what I would say is that it would give them a boost of credibility if they were coming out with a policy platform that had a similar kind of visionary promise, right? Like if they were promising, yes. and I can't even think of one just offhand, but if they were coming with a similar kind of major society transforming promise, I would be able to say, okay, they, they followed through on weed. They're actually going to follow through on this. It's not going to just fall down the memory hole. I honestly think that if the liberals pick a couple of other drugs to legalize, it could potentially get people fired up of saying, you know what, we've, We've experimented with this. It's working well. We could be a world leader. I realize this is not going to happen. But if the federal government came out and promised to, say, legalize magic mushrooms, I don't know it would get as many people to the polls. But I'd be really excited about that because it actually shows to me they're learning. And this was not just sort of an electoral ploy and a, and a cheap you know, virtual signaling thing. It actually means they're looking at the science and the success of this and are moving forward to stop the criminalization of psychoactive substances and, and moving towards a system that regulates them thoughtfully. Psychoactives would be super interesting because there's so much interesting research conversation coming out around LSD and magic mushrooms and their potential for yes. therapeutic benefit. So, like, actually... I like that idea a lot. Let's totally legalize the shit out of magic mushrooms. <laughs> if you live in Ontario, there's a very good chance your sleep schedule has been interrupted a few times because of Canada's new emergency alert system, which has been sending shrieking amber alerts to our phones on several occasions in recent months. To be fair to you, terrible, selfish Ontarians who are complaining about this, the rest of the country, including Alberta, has not received these as often as you have. Yes, and we've gotten them, like, a lot. Like, it's I think it's upwards of, of six or seven now. And they've been, honestly, I'm sorry, they have been very annoying. Now, that's not to say that it's not very important we, we find missing kids because Obviously, it is. Um, there's been people who are dialing 911 to complain about it. Those people are assholes. There's been people who are calling on the government to find those who are calling 911 to complain about them. They're also kind of assholes in their own no, right. No, I, I, I defend those people. They're not assholes. They're right. They're less assholes. I'll, I'll put it that way. And then there's a whole bunch of people who have been complaining on social media. But you know what? I have a solution here that I think can bring us all together. Something that is a time-honored tradition. I think we should just stop blaming the police. Stop blaming our phones. Let's blame the federal government. That's always popular. 
<laughs> no, I, I, I'm being quite genuine because this system was devised in partnership with the federal government, and I just don't think they did a very good job. I know it may seem shocking to you that the very people who created the Phoenix Pay system and most of the federal websites are not good at technology, but I'm telling you that's exactly what's happening. So this wait, wait. How, how could the federal government have created a better job of creating an Amber Alert system that doesn't annoy you as much, Justin? Better geotargeting. It is pretty wild that somebody in Toronto is getting an alert about a kid who went missing at Thunder Bay when it's just as likely they made it to Manitoba. People in Winnipeg aren't getting the alert. Why are people in Toronto getting it? To some degree, it doesn't make sense to blast it out to the entire province. You're actually just creating fatigue and you're making it more likely that the next time there's an alert, someone's not actually going to look at it because they're fed up and annoyed with them. I'm completely on for better geotagging. However, let's keep it into consideration that the geographic area that might get blasted with, with a Amber Alert is going to depend on what the police discover. If they think yep. that a perp yep. has gone east and west, they're going to flag the entire circumference. Yep, that's totally fair. But on top of that, it's also, I think, important that they actually send them in a more timely manner. There's been several occasions where a child has gone missing in the middle of the afternoon and the alert does not go out until 3 a.m. Do you think there might be a practical reason why those alerts haven't gone out till 3 a.m.? Like, that might not be a technological issue, but instead, like, just an investigative and reporting issue? It's possible, but... If, oh, it's possible. I'm, I'm sure the police just sat on a missing kid just till three o'clock in the morning no, just to fuck you over, Justin. No, 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 no. Again, a problem with the technology. There actually has been delays in sending them out. That is not entirely an investigative decision. The, the system is not working perfectly. You know, there is a way to make this system work better. I obviously think it's very important that it, when a child goes missing, we send out alerts and, and you know, get the public to help find them. That seems primordial. But at the same time, we, we can't send alerts out for every single case that comes up. I mean, then why we, should we send an alert every time there's a murder? Should we send an alert every time there's any no, missing person? No, it's a specialized not. alert for missing children, you Exactly, but we have to use them thoughtfully. Oh, well, no, we can't. We can't be throwing them out for every single missing baby. Only the special missing babies get the Amber Alert. No, I don't think it's obscene to say that we should use this program efficiently and effectively. I mean, at this rate, we should blast the entire country every time a child goes missing. That's an absurd argument. I'm actually, well, I agree with you on the geotagging, that we could probably be yes. better about geotagging. There we go. Setting out the alerts faster, I think, is also a good thing. Um, and I think we also neglect the fact that this is not a program the federal government created out of the good of their hearts. This is a private initiative from a company called Pelmorex, which actually owns the Weather Network, who you know, apply to the CRTC to get funding to to make this system. Oh, this is not there, no. <laughs> Some a contractor got funding to make a system to save babies' lives. Uh, okay. I don't know that this is entirely altruistic, Jen. They're making money off of it. It's not obscene to say that we should get them to make this program better. You know, it's not as though this is the only option we have. Even the complaint process is fucked up. If you have a problem with the way these alerts have been sent out, it goes to the CRTC, which actually doesn't have any sort of management over the system. That's technically run through public safety. So I don't think it's all that bizarre we should go to the federal government and say, do this program better. We want to get children found, but we also don't want a massive, totally unrestrained alert system that can be just blanketing huge parts of the country for not super effective or efficient reasons. Which would also probably entail the federal government giving more money to a private company. Oh my God. Or just running the system um, themselves. What I think that you should be able to do is you should be able to have on your phone an option so that when you go do not disturb or you set certain times that are your sleep times, you turn off all alerts, including Amber Alerts. Like you are not effective as a searcher of children 
children when you are asleep. So if you sleep between 10 and 6 a.m., you should be able to say, turn off Amber Alerts between 10 and 6 a.m. The other thing that I'm just going to point out here, and I'm going to make a fucking controversial stand on this, very few of you, including you and I, Justin, are so goddamn important that we need to have our phones next to our beds. It's bad sleep hygiene. Charge your phone downstairs unless you're like a 24-hour Ooh, doctor or I have something. a two-story house. Look at me. <laughs> I'm Jen Gr- I have stairs in my house. Oh, well, Ooh. I'm sorry you live underneath the stairs. <laughs> my cupboard is very cozy. We're based on the same page. No one can get mad at me because a mom agrees with me. So, you know what? Don't tweet me. I agree that you're a monster. Okay, let's do the credits. Well, that's Oppo. We'll be back again in two weeks, provided I haven't popped all over the floor. Tell your friends about us. (laughs) I just threw that out at you. (laughs) Yeah, you should probably mention you're pregnant. (laughs) For the people who don't know, that's a very jarring thing to hear. It's all right. I'm taking you right through the childbirth experience. We're doing live. We're doing live tweets this time. It'd be great. Oppo miracle of life. Tell your friends about us and find us on iTunes to give us a rating. Get in touch with us at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast to let us know what you think. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton and Laura Howells for Canada Land Media. Theme music by Nathan Burley. I have the last word this week, and that word is Japanese whiskey. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.